0: All right, tonight we're we'll be in Second Samuel. Strap, strap yourself in on your seatbelts because uh, this is quite a wild ride. If you read the text in advance, you know what I'm talking about. We have this struggle between the house of the house of Saul and the house of David, and even though Saul is now dead, in the storyline of where we're at. Uh, the, the, the battle, the conflict between Saul's house and David's house continues. David doesn't just immediately take the throne and then everybody kind of gathers in behind him. He is certainly anointed as king by God, and he's now even recognized by the southern kingdom. We saw last time at the beginning of chapter 2. But then this other king, the son of Saul, is, is also recognized in the northern kingdom, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, and Abner basically is the puppet master behind Ishbosheth, and um, he's the one pulling all the all the strings. But if you think about it in terms of just size and influence, both David's throne and Ishbosheth's throne are very weak at this point. David probably only has ten or twenty thousand people that are on his side. Um, Ishbosheth is he probably has a little bit more on his side but a lot of them don't know that they're supposed to be following him and and really his influence is very weak because you remember he's over on the east side of the Jordan River which is a largely uninhabited area Gilead in that area so it's not really a power position uh, the Philistines are largely occupying the land still uh, because of their significant victory that they just had and So this story that we're going to see tonight in chapters 2 and 3 is really a story about Abner. If you just looked up which word occurs most often in chapters 2 and 3, it's Abner. Abner occurs um, most often, more than even David. And so what the author wants us to see is that Abner really is pursuing power for himself. He has this lust for power and, and he will do whatever it takes to get what he wants. Sounds a lot like uh, someone else we know right the the king Saul who had just died and so Abner uh, is the main character of this story but while he is the main character there's a bigger theme at stake and I'll I'll show that to you at the end so we're going to start actually without looking at a theme I'm going to take you through the passage and then I'll I'll show you what I think the the text is talking about so let's begin reading in chapter 2 verse 12 and I'll read down through the end of the chapter so that we can get an idea of what's going on here. Second Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. This is the Word of God. Now Abner, the son of Ner, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon with the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on one side of the pool and one on the other side of the pool, Then Abner said to Joab, Now let the young men arise and hold a contest before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So they arose and went over by count twelve for Benjamin, and ish Ish the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. Each one of them seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helcath Hazarim, which is in Gibeon. That day the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel, and Asahel was as swift footed as one of the gazelles which is in the field. Asahel pursued Abner, and did not turn to the right or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. So Abner said to him, Turn to your right or to your left, and take hold of one of the young men for yourself and take for yourself his spoil. But Asahel was, was, willing to turn, was not willing to turn aside from following him. Abner repeated again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell there and died on the spot, and it came about that all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and when the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which is in front of Giah, by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. The sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one band, and they stood on the top of a certain hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, "'Shall the sword devour forever?' Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight any more. Abner and his men then went through the Arabah all that night, so that they crossed the Jordan and walked all morning, and came to Maanaim. Then Joab returned from following Abner when he had gathered all the people together. Nineteen of David's servants besides Asahel were missing. But the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men so that three hundred and sixty men died. And they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men went all night until the day dawned at Hebron. So, here we have David and Saul, their two houses, warring against each other. This conflict that doesn't end. And the first thing that we see in this text is in verses 12 through 32 that we just read. The enemy seeks to impose his will in opposition to God. The enemy seeks to impose his will in opposition to God. And here, Abner seeks to gain power over David. Abner is, is in a position where he is first in command in Saul's army. Saul's now dead, and so now he makes Ishbosheth king so that he has some, some position of power. And so he decides, you know what, I'm going to get myself even more power. And So he takes his men to Gibeon in verse 12. We should know a little bit about Abner if, we're, if he's the main character of the story. We met him in verse 8 last week. He's the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army. But his, his king, the, the one to whom he had been loyal, the one who he had seen rise up in the kingdom, um, he, he, uh, he's now dead. And so if David is going to be king over all of Israel and all of Judah, then Abner very likely is going to be either out of a job or he's going to be moved down in rank. He's not going to be first in command because Joab's already got that position. And so Abner will not sit on his hands and watch his kingdom slip away from him which is why in verse 8 he makes Ishbosheth king. Right? He he wants to have some kind of power. I have to have some position in this in this nation. But for Abner, making Saul's son king is not enough for him. He wants this kingdom to take root. He wants to be king over all of Israel. He doesn't like the fact that David is king over the southern portion of Judah. And so he crosses over to Gibeon. Now, if you think about that, this is a very significant move. Remember, they're over here in the hill country, in, in the, um, the farmlands, so to speak, not very inhabited. And so it's not really a strong position of power. The positions of power usually are the cities, right? The fortified areas and uh, where all the people are. And yet they're over here with their little kingdom, their, what I would call a paper kingdom, um, and, and, they, and they're not in a very good place. And so they cross over to the Jordan, and this now becomes a, a, a throwing down of the gauntlet on the part of, of Abner. He's basically saying, I'm coming over to your region. Gibeon is just north of Hebron where David and his men are. He's got that region. That's, that belongs to David. He's ruling over that region. So they moved from Maenam, the farmland, across the Jordan, over into um, to Gibeon in verse 12 and... Abner is making an aggressive move. Gibeon is six miles northwest of Jerusalem, and again, as I mentioned, not too far north of Hebron, David's home base. Well, Joab finds out about it in verse 13. Okay, so you have Abner, who is the commander in Ishbosheth's army, and you have Joab, the commander in, in David's army. And Joab finds out about this power play on the part of Abner. He's trying to take over here. He's He's uh, basically wanting to, to, uh, to make a move here on our kingdom. Abner has great experience, right? He's seen Saul's kingdom rise up from nothing to this great power. And so he has this experience. He has a much larger group probably following him than David does. And yet Joab is David's commander. Joab is the nephew of David. Apparently, Joab received word that Abner was coming, and so when he found out that he was going to Gibeon, he met him there. And notice what happens in verses 14 through 15. Then Abner said to Joab, Now let the young men arise and hold a contest before us, and let them arise. Verse 15, So they rose and went over by count 12 for Benjamin, and then at the end of the verse, 12 for the servants of David. So here's what he's doing. He's setting up. Abner is setting up a gladiator-style fight. We're going to send out our best 12 men. You send out your best 12 men and let's see who wins. This will show who is more powerful. This is similar to what the Philistines did right, in the Valley of Elah when they sent out their strongest man, their best warrior. You send out your best warrior, we're sending out ours. And whoever wins, that's who, that's who gets to take control. And so Abner's making a powerful move here. And the immediate result in verse 16 is that this gladiator match didn't end very well. All of them fell down by the sword of his opponent. All 24 of them died. And so instead of just kind of saying, well, we have a draw, let's everyone go home. The match led to, you can imagine, a lot of hostility, right? They, both, both groups lost their best 12 men. And as a result, this war continued. In fact, it, it intensified, didn't it? Because what happens next is that uh, the, the army of David or the army of Joab starts to chase after the army of Abner. And we know that because of, we, of the results. Look at verse 30 because we see the results of this, we could say this all-day battle that happens. So it starts out just as 12-on-12 12 12 battle, but here's the results. Verse 30 how many of David's men were lost that day? What does it say there? 19. And how many of Abner's men were lost in verse 31? 360. So the result here is an embarrassing defeat on the part of Abner. He's the one who set up the attack, or he's the one who set up the, the match, and he's the one who ends up losing. He goes on the run. Well, in verses. 18 to 23, we see Abner's retreat and self-defense. Abner's retreat and self-defense. There was one man who was a particularly fast runner, and his name was Asahel. Asahel is the brother of Joab, nephew of David. And Asahel could run uh, at least figuratively as fast as a gazelle in the field. And Asahel went off after Abner. I mean, Abner took out some of their best men with this with this gladiator match. And so he took off after Abner. In verses 20 through 22, Abner realized that Asahel would eventually catch him because he was so fast. And so he warns as he's running or maybe they were stopping to take a breath at some point. And he's like, are you going to keep following me? You need to turn to the right or the left. Take one of my servants. Take the spoils from them. I can't kill you. That's the thing. Abner's saying, I know what's going to happen if you die... Joab's going to be upset at me, and there's going to be this huge civil war. Which, which is silly, right, for Abner to say that, because Abner's the one who started the civil war. But Asahel was not, a, not willing to stop his pursuit. And so Abner said, fine, if you're not going to stop, then, then be prepared to die. And so as they're running, Abner takes his spear and thrusts it backwards, and Asahel runs right into it and is killed right there on the road. Now, the text says that, um, verse 23, the text says that Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the sword, so the back side of the spear. We wouldn't expect someone to die that way. So some commentators think that he was maybe just trying to stop him, maybe to knock, out, knock the wind out of him, and it ended up going all the way through him. Um, or it could be read that he struck him with a backwards thrust. So he actually used the spear end of the sword and just did a kung fu kind of move just right into his, his chest you're not going to stop following me then then you've made your choice now we might look at abner as a sympathetic figure you know but remember abner's the aggressor here isn't he he's the one who set up this whole civil war and so don't feel sorry for abner and you know he's being chased and it's not really that fair Um, abner is the aggressor abner is the one who's pursuing power at any cost in verses 24 through 32 we see abner's peace treaty so this battle is not going to stop i mean joab loses some of his best men including his own brother in fact asahel is listed later in chronicles as one of the 30 mighty men of david and so this is a big loss for for joab he loses his brother and so they're not going to stop chasing after abner and his men in fact they must have killed a lot more of abner's men because of the report in verse 31 But as they're being chased, Abner just says, we've got to figure something out here. This is not going to work. I mean, how are we going to be chased by Joab for days? We're just all going to die. And so he calls for a truce. You know, why can't we just get along? It's kind of ridiculous, right, on the part of Abner? And Joab sees right through it. It sounds kind of like the plea of a loser. You know, he, he already lost 360 men, and he says, can we just have a truce? It'd be like being down seven to nothing at halftime in a soccer game, and saying, "You know, can we just call the tie?" And and Joab recognizes what's going on, but for whatever, whatever reason, in verses 27 and 28, Joab agrees to call off the manhunt. He calls off the the um, the approach, and he tells them tells them that he would never have started the battle. He never would have been involved in this battle between his own brothers. Brothers, when I say that, I mean Jews, you know, Hebrews. And he wouldn't have done it if Abner hadn't initiated the battle. Now again, we might be just looking at Abner's actions and think, well, he's simply just trying to advance his position. Can we really fault him for that? But but we'll see in chapter 3 that Abner knows full well that God has already promised the kingdom to David. And so what he's not what he's doing is not, you know, I'm just a you know, I'm just an entrepreneur type of guy. I'm trying to just advance myself. I want to make the best of my situation. That's not what it was. It was defiance of God. God had made David king, Abner knew about it, and Abner was not going to allow that to happen if he could stand it. Similar to Saul, right? That was Saul to the T. He must have learned that from his master. Well, in chapter three we see that the enemy seeks to impose his will out of desperation. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. So first, the enemy seeks to impose his will in opposition to God. And then, secondly, the enemy seeks to impose his will out of desperation. In verses 1 through 5, we see the strife that Abner had with David. It says, now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David and David grew steadily stronger but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess and his second Kileab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Car- Carmelite and the third Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Gesher and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith and the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital and the sixth Ithrium by David's wife Egla. These were born to David at Hebron. So, several months, or maybe even up to a couple of years, after Abner's initial power play, the writer of Samuel tells us a progress report of how things are going. And he says if you want to look at these two houses, the house or the kingdom of Saul, Ishbosheth, and the kingdom of David, what you're going to recognize is that. David's kingdom was growing stronger, and Saul's kingdom, Ishbosheth's kingdom, was growing weaker. That's what it says in verse 1. And um, so this conflict really continues. Notice at the beginning of verse 1 now there was a long war between the house. So you see this conflict, it just keeps going on and on. But while Abner's power is remaining stagnant, David's influence is growing. Abner's power is remaining stagnant or becoming weaker, and David's power is growing. And one of the ways that David's power is growing is through the size of his family. David's taking on more wives. He, he is, he is uh, spreading his influence geographically by marrying multiple women. This is one of the ways that the pagan kings would often do. They would marry, they would marry the princesses of various nations. Because if you married a princess, then you would be in good favor with the princess's father. And um, so that's what he does. And then his family also grew through the birth of sons. And these sons would grow up to defend their father's throne. Or at least they should have. So in that sense, David's kingdom was growing and Abner's kingdom, Ishbosheth's kingdom, was growing weaker. So in verse 1, you have David growing stronger and Saul growing weaker verses 6 through 11, we see that Abner strengthens his position in Saul's house. Abner strengthens his position in Saul's house. It came about, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, "'Why have you gone into my father's concubine?' Then Abner was very angry over the words of ish and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and, and have not delivered you into the hands of David, and yet you today, you charge me with guilt concerning the woman. May God do so to Abner, and more also, if, as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba. And he could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid of him. So, even though the, the overall kingdom of Ishbosheth is weakening, what's Abner doing within the kingdom? He's strengthening his position. Now we think, wait, well, how can he really strengthen his position? You have Ishbosheth, Ish-bosheth first in command, he's the king, and then Abner. So, how can he strengthen his position? And this is exactly what sleeping with a concubine does for a commander in the army. He he strengthens his position. And, and there's nothing that he could have done that would have been more aggressive other than just take Ishbosheth's robe and his scepter and his armband and put them on and, and sit on Ishbosheth's throne and put his feet up and say I'm the king. There's nothing more he could have done than what he does here. Abner is running the show. It's been clear since the beginning of chapter 2 that Abner's been running the show and now he's growing stronger. The reason that this immoral act was such a defiant act to Ishbosheth is because the harem of the kingdom was like a piece of property in the kingdom. So that the man who slept with the king's harem was making a claim to the king's throne. He was saying, I have the power. This is going to happen later um, with one of David's sons. I can't remember his name, but, but it's at the beginning, or it's later on in, in the Kings, or beginning of First Chronicles. Um, no, it's not Absalom, but he, he actually sleeps with one of Solomon's concubines, and he's put to death as a result of it. Well, Ishbosheth knew what was going on, and so he calls him out on it. Ishbosheth largely has been a passive figure, hasn't he? But here he puts his foot down, he knows that this is a serious move on the part of Abner. And Abner replies in verse 8, Am I a dog? You know, I haven't done anything. I'm trying to help you. I haven't even turned you into David. I could have done that by now, and this is the thanks I get. He never really addressed the fact that he he committed this immoral act. And then in verses 9 and 10, he makes an oath before God. He says, Let God do so to me, and even more so, if I don't transfer the kingdom of Ishbosheth over to the kingdom of David. What's he doing? He's betraying his own king that he had established, isn't he? He's saying, I'm going to take all the people that I have under my care. And how many does he have under his care? All of them. Perhaps a hundred thousand. And he's saying, you no longer are, are going to be our king. I'm going to make uh, uh, an appeal to David. And I'm going to see if I can be strong in his army. Everyone under our rule is going over to David's side. And Ishbosheth. Could do nothing. Look at verse 11 again. And Ishbosheth could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid of him. The enemy seeks to impose his will out of desperation. And then we see in verses 12 through 39 that the enemy seeks to impose his will through a feigned alliance. Through a feigned alliance. Here, Abner seeks peace with David through flattery. Like, you know, if if Ish-bosheth, if Ishbosheth, you're not going to like what I've done for you, then see you later. I'm going to go work for David. And so, verse 12, Then Abner sent messengers to David in his place, saying, Who is Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. He said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you, Namely, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish, but her husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Beharim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. So he returned. Now Abner had consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it, for the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. And in addition to, Abner went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. Then Abner and twenty men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, Let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David and Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king. And he has sent him away and he's gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away and he's already gone? You know, Abner the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you and to learn of your going out and coming in and to find out all that you are doing. Joab recognizes what's going on. David's a little bit in the dark of Abner's power play here. Abner is seeking peace through this feigned alliance, saying, Listen, Ishbosheth, if you're not going to be what I want you to be, then I'm going over to David. And so he says, I'm going to exchange, I'm going to transfer my loyalty over to David. So he asks of David this request, and David wisely responds by saying, I want my wife Michael back. Michael is the daughter of Saul, and Saul had taken her away and given her to another man. And so David was not an idiot in that sense. He knew that Abner was betraying his own master, Ishbosheth. And now Abner supposedly wanted a covenant with David. And so David responds to the wise tactical move by demanding his wife back. David's saying, listen, I already paid the bride price for her. She belongs to me. Remember, he had to kill 100 Philistines and he ended up killing 200 for her. And what's interesting about this is that David doesn't ask this request of Abner. Instead, he sends the request to Ishbosheth. Notice verse 14. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, saying, "Give me my wife." So Abner makes a request. I want to be loyal to you, and David says, "All right, if you want to be loyal to me, let me send this note to Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, send me back my my wife." And there's this strange situation where his wife comes back and, and her then new husband apparently follows along with, with, with her and, and cries and just all the tragedy that comes along with these polygamous relationships really, really sad to see well Abner compels the elders to follow David in verses 17 through 19 and notice that Abner acknowledges something that he apparently knew all along but here he's using as the means of flattery he says in the middle of verse 17, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it, for the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people. So God has already made it clear that David's going to be king over all of us. So let's submit ourselves to that, to God's rule, effectively. Now this is not um, Isp, uh, Abner coming to um, to repentance or anything like that. All he wants is his power. And when he is... When he is um, you know, when uh, Ishbosheth does something that he doesn't like, then he's going to go somewhere else. And he, he already knows that God's going to make David king overall. So he states that. Well, David makes a feast for Abner and his 20 men in verse 20. And Abner promises to compel more people to be loyal to David. What I think the author wants us to see, though, is something that's repeated three times in this text, and, and really I think four, but, but at least three times. And perhaps you noticed it as I was reading through. In verses 21 through 24, it says at the end of verse 21, So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Verse 22, the end of the verse, For he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. And at the end of verse 23, And he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. And then verse 24, Why then have you sent him away? So why does the author repeat things? Why does anyone repeat things? Anybody have any ideas? Emphasis, right? We repeat for emphasis. We repeat for emphasis, okay? Uh, you'll get that later on the way home maybe. Um, or maybe you already got it and you're like, I, you've already used that joke a hundred times. Um, but but again, repetition is often used for emphasis. And so that's one of the keys to understanding narratives is look for the things that are repeated in the text. And um, And so this, I think, is a key to understanding what's going on. The author wants us to know... That while Abner is seeking his position of power and this lustful position of power and he can't stop until he gets that position, David is not like that. We're going to see next that Joab is is actually very similar to that. But David is not like that. David is a man who who is an honorable man with regard to how he he involves himself in these these dealings. And so when he sends Abner away, he sends him in peace. And what's going to happen is that Abner's going to die. Okay? And what, what the author wants us to know is that David had nothing to do with Abner's death. And that's why I think it repeats the same phrase over and over again. He sent him away and he went in peace. There's no, there's no conflict there. Uh, David is simply uh, trying to get more people under his rule, and I think rightly so because God had, had ordained that that would happen. But Joab knows what's going to happen. And that's why he says in verse 25, "Why did you send Or verse 24? Why did you send him away? Are you crazy?" Do you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to get your military position. Look at the end of verse 24, um, or verse 25. You know Abner the son that he came to deceive you and to learn of your going out and coming in. This is important. If he knows when you're going out and coming in, he knows your military position. And guess what's going to happen next time there's a battle? He will be right where you're not, or he'll be right where you are in an ambush. So, don't you see right through this? Joab's like, are you kidding me? Well, in verses 26-30, Joab murders Abner. Abner is murdered by Joab. Joab found out that David and Abner were at peace. Joab must have been livid. I mean, after all, Abner had killed Joab's brother, David's nephew. But David apparently wouldn't understand. Why would you accept the allegiance of a traitor, of a man who is opposed to us? But David wouldn't understand. So Joab was effectively going to take the law into his own hands. He wasn't even going to ask David's permission. He wasn't going to try to convince David to send him into battle and to kill Abner. Instead, he would just set up an ambush with Abner coming seemingly in peace, only to be killed. Look at verse 26. When Joab came out from David, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the well of Syrah. But David did not know it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the middle of the gate to speak to him privately. And there he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and on all His father's house, and may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge, or one who is a leper, or one who takes hold of a distaff, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So, Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. So, Joab didn't kill Abner out of self defense, he wasn't doing it to protect the throne of David. But as verse 27 and verse 30 say, out of vengeance. They wanted to avenge the blood of their brother. And I say they because Joab apparently did it with Abishai in verse 30, his other brother. But I think there's also an additional motivation in addition to avenging the blood of Asahel. I think he also could have been making his own power play. Right After all, Abner was starting to become buds with King David. And Abner's bringing all of these troops underneath the rule of David. So here you have Abner, this powerful one in Saul's house, and Joab, this powerful one in David's smaller house. And if Abner brings all of these men underneath the rule of David, perhaps he will he will succeed or or supersede the rule of Joab and now become second in command behind David And so perhaps Joab's thinking more about his brother and also about his own position. But again, the text makes clear, as it did earlier, David sent him away and he went in peace. The text again makes clear in verse 28, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever, the blood of Abner. So I had nothing to do with this. Now, the rest of the nation is not going to know this, right? Maybe they thought that David um, was making his own little power play. After Abner agrees to bring all the people underneath David's rule, David says, fine, you're gone. Thank you for bringing them all under me. You're dead. And so he sets up this little uh, ambush, this little encounter with Joab, and David calls for the death of Abner. But David wants them to know this has had nothing to do with me. Well, in verses 31 through 39, David calls for mourning. And this is, again, amazing like like he does with King Saul. when, When King Saul dies, Abner is mourned by David. This is important because as goes the leader, so often goes the people. In other words, how the leader responds in a time of crisis will often influence how the people will respond. So if David responded with joy that Abner was dead, then the people very likely would have responded with the same kind of, of emotion. Maybe the Civil War would have continued, but instead David squelched the emotions of the people by responding with grace and saying, you know what? Maybe Abner did deserve it, but, but, um, but that's not how he should have died. And this is not a show on the part of David. David wanted to make clear to the people of the north that he did not plot to kill Abner. And the people recognize his integrity, and I'll let you read verses 31 through 39 to see that. I think it further proves what, what I think the main point of the text is, and it is this. When the enemy seeks to impose his will, the righteous maintain their integrity. When the enemy seeks to impose his will, the righteous maintains his integrity, knowing that God's will will prevail. Knowing that God will have his purposes accomplished. That's what the righteous do. They don't seek these positions of power and go after uh, people and and just leave a wake of disaster in the way. Instead, they recognize that there's something much bigger at stake than their position. It's their character. It's their their attitude before God. It's their confidence in God and what He will do. So while the main character of the story is Abner, the main point of these two chapters is not about Abner. It's about David. And I think that's true from the larger context. If you just read through the rest from 1 Samuel 16 on through here, you see that the larger context is showing that David is a man of integrity. He's a man who follows God. While the other characters like Joab and Abner and Saul are men of vengeance and power because they are not driven by God's will and what God's purposes are, but they're driven by their own lusts. So two observations tonight. Two observations. Number one, David is a man of integrity, but not perfect integrity. Okay, I hope you picked up on this as we were reading through the text, particularly at the beginning of chapter 3. David is a man of integrity. That's the larger point, but he's not perfect in his integrity. There are two chinks that I see in David's armor. First, what do you think it is? His polygamy, right? His many wives. And, and here, let me just say something briefly about polygamy. The Bible often reports polygamy, polygamy. A man who takes multiple wives, in the Old Testament particularly, and it doesn't often comment on, that, on those many wives. It doesn't say, you know, in their taking of many wives, they shouldn't have done this because in doing so, they defied God. But that in no way is an endorsement of God for polygamy. Right? the wise reader will interpret the reality of David's actions in light of the rest of Scripture. And so I want to be just abundantly clear that there is no justification in the Old Testament or the New Testament for a person to marry more than one spouse. No matter if a person is a king or if he's just an ordinary Jew. But specifically for kings, God told Moses that when Israel has a king in Deuteronomy 17, 17, he shall not multiply to himself, wives, otherwise his heart will turn away from God. Isn't that true? Isn't that what often happens with these men? Solomon's a great example of that. In the multiplication of his wives, yes, he actually increased his influence around the globe, but he also started to turn his heart away from God. So that's the first chink in his armor, I think. So he's a man of integrity, but not perfect. So we need to be wise in reading this second chink in David's armor, is his response to the murder of Abner. It's interesting that he mourns the loss of Abner, but but like he's going to do with Absalom, and Absalom murders who? The oldest son, remember Amnon. Absalom murders Amnon, and what does David do? He turns a blind eye to it. I'm not going to do anything about it. And as a result, he's got lots of trouble on his hands for many years because Absalom tries to take the throne away from him. And the reason why David doesn't carry out legitimate retribution on Joab's merciless sin is found in verse 39. So we skipped over this, so let me go back to it. Um, let's start in verse 38. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? So please mourn their death. Then he says in verse 39, I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zariah, are too difficult for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. He's basically like, you know, let God handle them however he wants to. I'm not going to have any part of it. And yet, he was the one who was responsible for them. He's saying, they're too strong for me. I'm the king, but I'm kind of weak. And this passivity along with his polygamy will put a black mark on his otherwise solid record as king of israel obviously as, long, as well as his immorality so with that observation being stated let's focus on the main point of the text and a second observation which is that david is committed to god's will and god's timing david's committed to god's will and god's timing this is something we've seen before, but it, I think it's important for us to, to reiterate because the text does. This is the point. David was not a bloodthirsty power seeker like Saul or Abner or even Joab. Abner serves as a negative example for us. Right? He helps give us a window into our own heart as to how often we are like Abner where we hunger and thirst after power and position that God either has not promised to us or that, that is not in His timing. Abner knew that God made David king according to verse 18, but he didn't want to submit to God's rule. So he tried to do it his own way. What about you and me? Where does this show up in our life? When does our passion, our lust for power or position become more important than God's desire for us to remain where we are or to simply pursue faithfulness like a plodding farmer? You see, once that position of power becomes our great passion, it actually becomes our God. And, and as a result, we will perform any number of sins and power plays in order to get what we want. We will destroy people who are our enemies. We will even go so far as to destroy our friends and we will do it with a big smile on our face because we have to have that position of power. The Holy Spirit is convicting you right now of your lust for power. Can I say in the words of Hebrew that if today you hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart once again and resist His will. When a position of power becomes our God, our defiance will show itself in overt actions like civil war, like with Abner. I mean, we're just going to... not in a like a, a nationwide civil war. Okay, We don't have that kind of position where we can influence that many people, but but we'll have a civil war among the people that we know, right? Whether it's at work or in the church or in our family. Or maybe it'll be more covert, like Joab. Where Joab kills Abner out of revenge for his brother. But either way, the lust for power has led us to defy God's will. God has already stated what is going to happen, what He wants to happen, and we resist it. Instead of being like Abner, Saul, Joab, we should be like David. We should have a heart of integrity. David endured years of conflict, probably a decade and a half at least, of conflict from the house of Saul. And even after Saul is dead, he doesn't slaughter the house of Saul. I was reading through Second Chronicles this week and... Jehoram, the very first thing he did when he became king was he killed all of his brothers. He didn't want anyone to try to take over the throne from him. And this is often what kings do when they come into power. David was not like that. He was actually going to maintain. Remember, that was the commitment he had with Jonathan. Will you you promise to protect my house? And David said, yes, I will. See, David is a man after God's own heart and will not force himself into his promised position of king over Israel. Instead, he's going to wait on God. And so, friends, we can learn from David, and we should learn from David. He does not live for his own glory, he does not live for his own position, he does not live for the advancement of his own power and recognition, but for the glory of God. And that means that he and we need to trust God to give us what he has promised and to get what he has promised according to his revealed way in his unrevealed time. That's, the, that's part of the difficulty of faith, isn't it? That God tells us what we will receive often, but not the timing. And we have to wait on God. We have to, to wait on His timing. When the enemy seeks to impose his will, the righteous maintain their integrity, knowing that God's will will prevail. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we're thankful for the example of David and even the negative example of Abner and Joab and, Lord, how we see ourselves in these men. How many times have we been like them in, in seeking positions in various um, places in our life? Lord, would You forgive us for, for defying Your will, defying Your timing, and doing things our own way. And instead, Lord, would You help us to have hearts of integrity that are concerned about more than just what we want, but but ultimately about what You want. And Lord, we know that that You are a good God and, and that You always give us good gifts. The trouble for us is that we don't see the good in them at the time, and so it's hard for us to follow. It's hard for us to submit. It's hard for us to wait. So would You give us strength today to accomplish what You want us to do so that in the end You would be glorified so that, so that what we do in life is all about You. I'm thankful for Jesus Christ and for the blessings we have that come from Him. I'm thankful for all the promises that we have in Him and that they're all yes in Him. And we long for the day when those promises will be fulfilled. So bring about His return quickly. Bring about the end of all things when we will be vindicated when we will be seen to have been right in the way that we followed You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.